Welcome to Understand Murdoch, a podcast from the Post and Courier, South Carolina's largest newspaper. Our award-winning reporters have spent more than a year digging into the Murdoch saga to bring you the latest news and in-depth analysis as we cover this story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's rural low country. Today, Glenn Smith and Avery Wilkes discuss an entire recap of the Murdoch saga. It's a complex story with so many internal threads that we had to break this up into two parts. We hope you enjoy. So where to begin? You could go all the way back to 1910 when Randolph Murdoch uh, formed his own law firm in the tiny town of Hampton. Hampton is is this small uh, inland town that's really kind of an hour or more away from just about anywhere. It's about 40 miles away from the interstate, which of course didn't exist back then, but it's, it's, it's always been a pretty small place, very tight-knit place. Uh, so Randolph Murdoch forms this um, law firm and uh, after that runs for solicitor of Hampton County. And that is the chief prosecutor presiding over, you know, all, all the criminal cases in the county. That would set off a family dynasty uh, in which three successive generations of Murdochs controlled the local prosecutor's office for, for some 80 years. And also, the local firm that he founded became this juggernaut, uh, building up massive power and wealth over this time by, by suing a whole litany of deep-pocketed corporations and winning uh, gigantic verdicts. They became synonymous with power and money in Hampton County and throughout much of the Low Country. And so, so Randolph Murdoch, the guy who started all this, is the great-grandfather of Alex Murdoch, who is the center of this web of criminal and civil lawsuits and conspiracies. Uh, the man now who has really go- drawn global attention for his alleged crimes and, and the saga of his family. That's what we're going to be exploring here in the coming months. But, but really, the modern era of the Murdoch saga starts in February 2019 with a boat crash that occurred down in Beaufort County. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Avery? Yeah, this was a February 2019 crash uh, late one evening uh, in which a boat allegedly driven by Paul Murdoch, the youngest son of Alec Murdoch, uh, crashed into a Beaufort County bridge piling, ejecting all six passengers who had spent the past day and night Uh, drinking and partying together, uh, ejecting them all into the water. Uh, Five of them made it back uh, to shore, but one of them, 19-year-old Mallory Beach, uh, was not found. Um, Her body was recovered about a week later. Um, Her family ultimately filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Paul Murdoch uh, and his family, as well as some other people and companies that provided... um, the, the six teenagers alcohol that evening. Um, and that lawsuit uh, really dragged the, uh, as well as the boat crash itself, dragged the Murdoch family into the spotlight, uh, which they really hadn't been, at least from a statewide level before. That case j- raised all sorts of questions about um, obstruction of justice, about uh, the justice system in general in the 14th circuit that Murdoch's family had, had dominated for almost a century. Um, there were questions about who was actually driving the boat that night, whether it was Paul Murdoch or another one of the passengers. Uh, there were questions about uh, the efforts of Alec Murdoch uh, and his father to go into the hospital and try to 
uh, interfere with the law enforcement investigation about who was driving and who should be held responsible. Um, and there also uh, have been questions just about uh, the Murdoch's influence uh, down there in the 14th Circuit, the kind of money that they that they have uh, and how much money could be recovered in that lawsuit. Uh, so that was the case that really kicked all of this off, um, you know, that tipped the first domino uh, into toppling the Murdoch dynasty. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you said, it exposed some uh, connections down there and some questions about the, the power of the family. Now, Alex Murdoch, he, he never, like his father, grandfather and great grandfather, served as solicitor of Hampton County, but he was a part-time volunteer assistant solicitor, badge carrying uh, assistant solicitor. Um, as the boat crash case um, went through the investigative stage, the solicitor, Duffy Stone down there, uh, he recused himself from the case because of his ties to the family. Then, not too long after that, a key judge and then another judge recused themselves for the case, uh, which raised questions about, like, how is this thing being investigated if the family's got ties to all these people in official power? Wouldn't you say that's the case? Absolutely. That was the first sign that this was not your typical law enforcement investigation, um, as well as, you know, some of the statements that were made by uh, the boat crash passengers uh, immediately after the crash um, and during the investigation. So, uh, yeah, it, it was sort of the question of what happens when someone from the most powerful family in this uh, neck of the woods in South Carolina falls into uh, uh, law enforcement scrutiny? Are they going to get the same, uh, you know, the same shake that the rest of us would get. Um, you know, there were questions about the fact that when, um, uh, you know, it took so long to even arrest Paul Murdoch. And when he was booked, you know, the, the, the photo, his booking photo was not him in some sort of jail jumpsuit. It was him in his nice collared shirt, uh, you know, in a photo taken on an iPhone. Uh, so there's there were all these questions uh, then and, and now about uh, whether justice would be administered in this case. Yeah, as you pointed out, it, it took months uh, to, to bring the criminal charges against him. The lawsuit was actually filed before those criminal charges even came to bear. And it, as these questions came up, like, you know, the fact that his father and grandfather uh, show up at the hospital, prevent him from talking to law enforcement, um, Questions about the tests that showed, you know, his blood alcohol level at the hospital was 0.28, more than three times the legal limit to drive a car in South Carolina. Uh, people began to ask, well, why didn't they take any sobriety tests at the scene after, um, you know, people were clearly intoxicated, noted in the in the report to be grossly intoxicated. Uh, and then other things came up about some of the law enforcement officers at the scene that night, their, their ties to their Murdoch family, uh, having been represented by Alec Murdoch in the past. Um, there's also the case that uh, Paul's cell phone goes missing, doesn't get turned into evidence. Uh, he's heard on some tapes saying, I dropped my cell phone. Can I borrow yours? And deputy says, it's right back there. I'll go get it. But then it never turns up into evidence. So there's all these little pieces that begin adding up over time to some really deep questions and people uh, raising questions about the level of, of justice that's being applied here. And those questions have remained and, and, and even been amplified as we fast forward in this case to uh, the double murder uh, in June 2021 of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. Uh, you know, there are questions about the fact that the Murdoch family members were allowed on the scene um, and, uh, and and were seen with investigators walking the grounds of the estate uh, near the crime scene that day. Uh, there are questions about, 
you know, the involvement of the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office, where Alec Murdoch had been a badge carrying part time volunteer solicitor, uh, you know, and their involvement in the case. Uh, you know, and there were questions about, you know, was this case going to be investigated properly? Uh, was Alec Murdoch being seriously looked at as a suspect, um, as many spouses are, uh, you know, whenever their, uh, their, their partner is killed? Um, so, you know, these are these are questions in this boat crash that would would certainly be repeated, um, you know, a couple of years later when Paul and Maggie were found killed. Yes. Yeah, so so the the case um, at the time back in 2019, it was certainly drawing a lot of interest in the low country, uh, the Island Packet newspaper, which covers that area a little bit. But they're a little bit closer than we are there. Um, they were doing a lot of great stories, raising a lot of questions about this, drew our attention. We did some stories. Uh, the state newspaper uh, went down there. Reporter John Monk did a great piece about the, um, the, the dynasty of the Murdochs and the power they held down there. It was primarily a local story, though, within South Carolina up until the night of June 7th, 2021, um, when Maggie and Paul Murdoch were found dead at the family's hunting estate in Colladin County, which is the next county over from Hampton. Yeah, for those of us here in South Carolina, uh, it was one of those moments where I think most people can remember um, where they were when they got that push notification uh, or when they, they saw the news that uh, Maggie and Paul Murdoch had been shot to death. It was uh, an absolute shock, uh, something that uh, you couldn't really have fathomed. Uh, and there were all these questions immediately about who might have done this? Uh, what motive they would have had? Uh, does it have anything to do with with the beach case um, or or any of uh, Alec Murdoch's financial issues at the time? Um, and, and these are some questions that we still haven't answered even today. Um, you know, but uh, immediately it, it drew national and eventually international attention to this corner of South Carolina that for so long had been ignored. Uh, and it renewed this scrutiny of the Murdoch family um, and, and all the power that they've had at, um, you know, in that corner of the state. The slayings also ramped up attention specifically on Alec Murdoch, uh, who was the one who called 911 that evening uh, to report finding his wife and son shot badly. Um, you know, he seemed extremely distressed in the 911 calls that came out days later. Um, and uh, but but there were no immediate uh, suspects. Uh, law enforcement was very, very tight-lipped about their investigation in, in the first days and weeks of this case. Uh, uh, they didn't name suspects uh, really until the indictment of Murdoch um, more than a year later. Uh, and we only found out through Murdoch's attorneys that uh, he himself was a, a person of interest in the case. Um, and another confounding thing was that uh, SLED, the state law enforcement division, uh, who took the lead on investigating this case, quickly announced that there was no danger to the public, even though uh, they weren't announcing any suspects, even though the the murder weapons had not been uh, recovered, uh, you know, even though at least publicly, uh, no one had any idea who did this and why. Uh, so there was all this intrigue uh, that was, you know, immediately came out of the news that, that Maggie and Paul had been shot uh, and, and that really carried on for the next 13 months. Uh, it sparked a ton of uh, headlines and magazine stories and profiles from national outlets. Uh, podcasts were generated out of this. Uh, cable news documentaries, book contracts. It's 
it's really one of the biggest stories uh, that South Carolina has ever seen. Yeah, if we take a step back there to that night, too, and the, the absence of any official information flowing out really sparks uh, rumor and, and speculation in the community and, and people's fears run rampant. Next thing you know, all these wild things start coming out to fill that vacuum that's left. And like you said, SLED put out almost nothing. And the, the Cowden County Sheriff's Office refused to release the incident report for, for quite some time, uh, refused to release the 911 tapes. And as you said, there was this confounding uh, sort, of, sort of contradictory thing where they're saying there's no suspects. We have no idea who do, did this. Yet nobody should be worried. And people are like, what do you mean I shouldn't be worried? There's supposedly at least one or two people out there running around with a pair of guns that killed someone. You don't have them in custody. Why should I not be feared from, fearful of my own safety? Now, Maggie, Maggie was 52 and Paul was 22. Um, that They were found on the property near Kennels uh, by the estate and that they had been shot with two different guns, a shotgun and a rifle. Uh, and as, as Avery said, that that... Alec Murdoch was the one who who found them that night. Um, yeah, speculation ranged everywhere from you know possibly a you know a, a drug cartel was involved or a former client or there was just all sorts of speculation and uh, it, it really continued for months and months and months. To step back for a second, before the murders at Mazelle of Maggie and Paul Murdoch is all the, in the run up to this. Uh, the family of Mallory Beach, the 19 year old young woman who was killed in the boat crash. Attorneys for her family had been pushing to see the financial records of Alec Murdoch to just to get a sense of, of, you know, his holdings and, and, and all that. Um, and, and this, in retrospect, I think it was closing in on, on, the possibility of once they open these records, they would see some serious financial crimes and some discrepancies in there. But at the time, that you know that hadn't come to light, and I think that the case sort of breaks open in in the aftermath of of the pair's death at Mazelle. Uh, Mandy Matney was with uh, FitzNews.com at the time. Did, did a story that uh, explored uh, some of the deaths uh, that had either directly or indirectly related to the Murdoch family and had mentioned the Satterfield case and had mentioned that there had been a settlement in that case or some proposed settlement was on the books. And I think the sons or someone close to the sons of of Miss Satterfield uh, saw that and said, wait a second, I I don't know anything about a settlement. And they began to ask some questions. And that when Bland and Richter stepped in and started really pushing for answers. And, and as Avery said, really uh, began to rip the rip the cover off uh, this whole whole mess. So in early September, another shocking bit of Murdoch news dropped. And it was that Alec Murdoch had been shot in the head. Uh, this was extremely shocking to say the least, uh, because it came just months after his wife and son had been shot and killed. Uh, and, and when the news first came out, it was sort of unclear what, uh, Alec's condition was. Uh, he'd been taken to a hospital. The wound was, uh, not extremely significant despite it being a wound to the head. So in the wake of this shooting, uh, there were obviously, uh, tons of theories and a lot of speculation that went on. Uh, Murdoch's, attorneys uh, came out uh, with his initial explanation for the event, which was that he had stopped uh, in a rural road uh, to inspect a flat tire. uh, And someone drove by in a pickup truck, uh, doubled back and uh, asked him if he needed help uh, and then shot him in the head and and drove off. 
Um, that story uh, fell apart over the next few days. Um, Sled, uh, who was investigating, didn't entirely seem to buy it. Um, and uh, uh, news came out soon that um, the shooting had immediately followed um, uh, Murdoch's longtime employer, uh, the PMPED law firm, the firm that his great grandfather founded in 1910, uh, had just fired him or forced him out um, uh, amid allegations that he had been stealing from his clients and law partners. Uh, at that time, the amount he had allegedly stolen was not disclosed, but uh, PMPD released a statement making clear that um, they had forced him to resign and, um, you know, that he that you know, they were distancing themselves as much as they could from him. Uh, after the shooting, Murdoch um, uh, uh, went to a detox center. He admitted a 20 year addiction to opioids uh, and he yeah, said he was seeking help. And, you know, I believe at the time he apologized for uh, any harm he had caused uh, to the law firm. Um, so again, in, in the days after that, his story about the roadside roadside shooting fell apart, uh, and he ultimately admitted to Sled that he had tried to arrange his own uh, murder because he wanted to die essentially in the in the throes of depression after the deaths of his wife and son. Um, but he thought that his insurance policy would not pay out uh, if he co uh, committed suicide. Um, that was actually not the case. Um, his policy would have paid out. Uh, so that was you know, apparently a mistake on his part. Um, but he said that he enlisted a, uh, a longtime associate, uh, Curtis Edward Smith, to shoot him in the head uh, so that he would die and he would leave a $10 million life insurance payout to his remaining son, Buster. Um, so when he tells a story to SLED, uh, SLED ultimately charges both him and Curtis Smith um, with several charges, including uh, insurance fraud, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> in this in this bot shooting. Uh, and, and again, this this just kicks off a, um, a laundry list of, of crazy, bizarre uh, twists and turns in this Murdoch story. This has been part one of the Murdoch recap. Stay tuned for part two soon. That's all for now. As always, stay tuned with the Post and Courier for the latest updates in this case. You can follow along at postandcourier.com slash Murdoch updates. Follow us on Twitter at Post and Courier. And we encourage you to send questions, feedback, and tips to our Murdoch email address. That's Murdoch at postandcourier.com. Today's episode was hosted by Avery Wilkes and Glenn Smith. Produced by Nathan Stevens. Music provided by Alexa Music. We'll see you next time.